0: I want to talk to you this morning about, in the light of what, uh, what we're pointing towards next week, I want to talk to you about sharing the gospel God's way. There's lots of ways to share the gospel. We want to know how to share God's way. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we're going to look into His Word and find out how best to do that. We're going to take a little hiatus from the book of Hebrews and uh, turn to Genesis chapter 24. Now Jesus gives us a command in Matthew's Gospel, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verse 19. Anybody know the command? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to obey all that that He's commanded us. So we have a mandate. And the mandate is that we make disciples, that we tell other people, we instruct other people, that we baptize other people in the name of the Lord. Now, if we're going to make other disciples, we have to know how to share with them, first of all, the gospel. Who knows what the word gospel means? It means good news. Now, typically when people think about God, they don't necessarily think about good news. Lots of times people think about bad news. But we have good news to share with people, don't we? Say, I have good news to share with you. Say that. I have good news to share with you. Isn't that exciting? We have good news to share with people. Now, if you look into the New Testament, where do you think you would find, accounted for, Uh, great numbers of people becoming Christians, great numbers of people being witnessed to and coming to know Christ. The book of Acts, right. That's the book that records the beginning of the church and the growth of the early church in the first century. Now, if that's the place where we find all these great numbers of people coming to know Christ and the church expanding across Asia and Asia Minor and now into Europe, you would expect then in the book of Acts you would also find a pattern if you will, or maybe some step-by-step instructions of how indeed to share the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody. But guess what? You don't find that there. So you say, well, where do we go? Is there a pattern? Is there a a particular way that God has given for us to share? Yes, there is. And we're going to find that this morning in Genesis chapter 24. You say, we have to go all the way back to Genesis? Yes. Yes. The Apostle Paul says something very fascinating in uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He says to us, For everything that was written in the past, so that points back to the Old Testament, everything that was written in the past was written to what? Teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So we have great hope for our life. We can go back into the Scriptures and we can find all sorts of instruction." And we can endure and we can be encouraged through the scriptures. Now, amongst all those things that that are written for our benefit and for instruction uh, are instructions for how to share God's good news with people. That's what we're going to learn this morning in Genesis chapter 24. That passage gives us some tremendous insight into evangelism, God's style. Now, on the historical plane, when you read chapter 24 in the book of Genesis, just on the historical plane... What do we find there? What does that chapter describe? Anybody remember? It's the account of Abraham sending his most trusted servant to his original homeland to find a wife for his son Isaac. Now, does that sound remotely familiar? Is there somebody in heaven who has sent his emissary... To a remote place to find a bride for his son. Yes. Yes. We're going to see tremendous parallels. And in the context of those parallels, we're also going to see a pattern emerge for how we, as servants of God, are we not his servants? Participate in the bringing of the bride of Christ to the bridegroom. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, we get to participate, the Holy Spirit is going to work through us in this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful way. Now, since Isaac is a type of Christ, and we'll, we'll look at it, I'm going to explain that to you in just a few minutes. It isn't surprising at all that in this passage there are a number of fascinating parallels between the account of the search for a bride for Isaac, who is uh, by, the, by the servant who sent by Abraham. Tremendous parallels uh, in the sending forth of the Holy Spirit to take out of the world a people for God's own, God's own people, a bride for Christ, the church. We're going to see tremendous parallels. Now, just as kind of a corollary statement, uh, and I don't want to let this pass by, I just want to address for a moment, this chapter also, chapter 24, serves as a marvelous example in a marvelous Guide for people who want to get married. For young people and their parents. Study chapter 24 of Genesis. If in fact you are making preparations for marriage, you will find some significant instruction and some principles to apply to your own preparations for marriage within this chapter. So I just want to offer that to you for your own consideration. As you contemplate marriage... Go back to Genesis chapter 24 and say, God, teach me. Now, let's look at Genesis 24, but let's look with spiritual eyes now. And we want to see God's plan, if you will, for how to share the gospel. Again, just by way of background, remember, Isaac is a type of Christ. How many remember what what typology is? We've talked about that. We've been in the book of Hebrews. A type is a picture of something given that points to something in the future. Remember the sacrifices of the Old Testament were a type or a picture of the one great final sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, right? The tabernacle uh, that God uh, gave designs for, for Israel to build in the wilderness and ultimately in Jerusalem was a type of the one final permanent tabernacle in heaven. So we see these types, we see these pictures. Same principle holds true with respect to Isaac. Isaac is a type of Christ. There are tremendous parallels in their two lives. We gain some tremendous insight into how uh, he pictures Jesus. Let me give you some of these. Let me share these with you quickly. Isaac, like Christ, was promised long before his coming. Isn't that true? Both were promised long before their coming. Isaac, like Christ, finally appeared at the appointed time, didn't he? And Jesus also appeared at the appointed time, we're told. Isaac, like Christ, was conceived and born in a miraculous way. Does that that point to Jesus also? Conceived and born in a miraculous way. Isaac, like Christ, was assigned his name by God even before his birth. Tremendous parallels. Isaac, like Christ, was offered up and sacrificed by his father, right? And also, Isaac, like Christ was himself obedient unto death. Now we know that Isaac didn't die, but he was obedient unto death. And Isaac, like Christ, was raised from the dead to be the head of a great nation and indeed a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. We see these same incredible parallels between Isaac and Christ. Hence, Isaac is a type of Christ. And if the servant has gone to get a bride for Christ, then we can look and see how the servant of God In effect, the Holy Spirit goes into the world to to get a bride for Jesus. Now, there's also some other types we see in chapter 24, uh, Isaac being a type of Christ. We see Isaac awaiting union with his bride uh, when finally she comes to him. And in the meantime, what's he doing? He's preparing a place for her. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Jesus says, I go away to what? Prepare a place for you. Now think with me. The last time we see Isaac, in Genesis, the last time we see Isaac, prior to seeing him again at the end of chapter 24, the last time we see him is in Genesis chapter 22. We see him where? What's the event? It's when his father takes him up to Mount Moriah, right? Lays him on the altar. He's prepared to sacrifice him. And then, of course, the lamb is substituted, the ram is substituted. So this is the last time we see Isaac, when he's being offered in sacrifice, and in effect he rises from the dead. We don't see him again, though we hear about him in the ensuing chapters. The next time we see Isaac, at the end of chapter 24 of Genesis, is when he suddenly appears again to receive his bride. Now, are there any parallels there? When is the last time we see Jesus? Is death, burial, and resurrection, right? Do we see him after that? No, we hear about him a lot. When's the next time we see Jesus? When he appears to receive his bride to himself. Is that not an incredible parallel? It's a beautiful picture of, of the typology of Isaac picturing Jesus. Now, let's look at Rebecca, who would become Isaac's bride. Rebecca would represent what, do you think? The church, that's right. Rebecca would represent the church. The chaste bride of Christ. And as you study chapter 24 of Genesis, you see that Rebecca indeed reveals that kind of character. She is a chaste bride. Reminds you of the bride of Christ presented in the book of Ephesians who is presented as without spot or wrinkle, blameless in every way. Beautiful picture. This is Rebecca. She's a picture of the Bride of Christ. We also see Rebecca, who is preparing to meet her bridegroom. The church is preparing to meet her bridegroom. Isn't that true? Aren't we preparing? Anticipating? The marriage for both planned long before they even knew about it. The marriage of the church and Jesus planned long before the church was even ever in existence. The marriage between Rebekah and Isaac planned long before she ever would know about it. Long before. Rebekah, just as the church, absolutely necessary for the accomplishment of God's purpose. Without Rebekah, there would be no Jacob. And without Jacob, there would be no 12 tribes. With no 12 tribes, there would be no... Tribe of Judah. Without the tribe of Judah, there would be no Messiah. So she is absolutely essential to the fulfillment of God's purpose. Is the church absolutely essential to the fulfillment of God's purpose on this earth? Absolutely, without doubt. Absolutely. So they're both critical to the fulfillment of God's purpose on earth. Both share in the glory of the Son. Here's Rebecca. She would come and she would share in the glory that Isaac receives. He passed on to him not only all the wealth of his father Abraham, but all the promises of God. And Rebekah would share in all that. The church is guaranteed to share in the glory of the son when we're finally together. We see the similarities in Rebekah and the church. Rebekah learned of the son, learned of Isaac, through his emissary. The servant goes to... Uh, Abraham's hometown. We see, we're see we going to see as we study the passage, we'll see him finding the bride, finding Rebecca. And on the trip back, don't you think that Rebecca said, tell me all about him. I want to know all about him. Tell me what's he, what's he like. And, and the same thing is true. You become a Christian and then the Holy Spirit begins to teach you, begins to teach you all about, about who? About Jesus. Doesn't, doesn't Jesus say that? The Holy Spirit will teach you. He's our teacher. He's the emissary. He's the paraclete. We see tremendous parallels in Rebecca's life in the church. Again, she immediately leaves all and goes to the son, loving him even before she saw him. True of the church. We leave all and we turn and we go towards the son and we love him even before we see him. She journeyed through the wilderness to meet Him, guided by the servant. We journey through the wilderness to meet Jesus, guided by the Holy Spirit. And finally, she was loved by Him and united with Him forever. Beautiful picture. Finally, one day, we will, we will see Him, we will be united to Him, and we will be loved by Him forever and ever and ever. Tremendous parallels. Now, again, we speak of typology, The servant is a type of the Holy Spirit. That's right. The Holy Spirit who accompanies the church through the world's wilderness, teaching the church the things of Christ until finally he presents her to Christ, a spotless bride, at the end of the journey. Now, not only is the servant a type of the Holy Spirit, but the servant is a type of us in the sense that the Holy Spirit works through us to bring other people to know Christ. So we are significant in this process. All right? Now, given that background and and that understanding, uh, the stage is set. I want us to look at the first nine verses, first of all, of chapter 24. Now we're told that Abraham was now old and well-advanced in years. How old was Abraham? How well-advanced in years was he at this point? Do you know? He's 140 years old. Now he will go on to live to 175. But at this point, he's 140. His wife Sarah has died. She's been dead for about three years. Now this makes Isaac about 40 years old. Do you think it's about time he marries? (laughs) Yes. So Abraham realizes that. Abraham doesn't know how much longer he has to live. In fact, he'll remarry again and produce more offspring. Amazing. You know, when God revives you, he revives you. (laughs) Big time. (laughs) All right? So, Abraham knows that that the promises are going to be passed on to Isaac. He doesn't know how much time he has left. He can't go and get a son. So he's going to send his trusted servant to get a bride for his son. In order for the promises to go on. So let's read. He said to his chief servant, verse 2, in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, the most trusted, in charge of everything. He says, put your hand under my thigh. That was just another way of uh, signifying uh, agreement or covenant, if you will, taking an oath. It's like, we shake on it? He says, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife or my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to that country that you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household, and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. Is is Abraham emphatic about this? Yeah, yeah. He says, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master. Abraham swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Now, there's a couple of things that are significant. We're going to learn three things from those first nine verses. First of all, this is very important. The initiative of bringing a person to Christ begins with who? The initiative of bringing a person to Christ begins with who? God the Father. God the Father. It begins with God the Father. Who takes the initiative in this account? Abraham does. Abraham says to his servant, I want you to go and get a a wife for my son. So the father takes the initiative. The initiative doesn't start with you or I. Now I want to point out a couple verses to you in John's Gospel, chapter 6. I want you to note verse 37. John, chapter 6, verse 37. There we go. All that the Father gives me, who gives? The Father. See, God the Father is orchestrating this whole thing. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So God has identified people who he's going to give to the Son. We're amongst that group. Isn't that wonderful? All that the Father gives me. Now I want you to look at verse forty four, John chapter six. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me what? God. Now if you were to go back to the Greek text there, the literal Greek word is drags. <laughs> no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him. I don't know about you, but I had to be dragged into the kingdom. I look back in retrospect and I say, How stupid. I should have come running into the kingdom. I'm still recovering from rounded heels. (laughs) A lot of people have to be dragged into the kingdom, kicking and screaming. So the initiative of bringing a person to Christ doesn't start with you. It doesn't even start with the Holy Spirit. It starts with the Father. Very important. Secondly, we learn, he said, don't take a bride from among Who? The Canaanites, the people in which he's living, in the midst of whom he's living. The Canaanites picture the unbelievers of the world. These are the people who are under God's wrath. They cannot be the bride of Christ. It's impossible for them. Now you need to know that the Canaanites traditionally and historically, if you go back into the Old Testament, you see that God gave them every opportunity to repent. God gave them every opportunity. They only got worse and worse and worse and worse. And we're told that, that God didn't bring Israel in to take possession of the promised land until the iniquity of the Amorite, or the Canaanite, was full. Until they were absolutely beyond repentance. That's when he brought Israel into existence and he commanded Israel to literally wipe them out. Which, of course, they did not do as they were commanded. Hence, trouble. But I want you to notice, John chapter 3, verse 36. We're told, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath, what? Remains on him. There are people who are just not going to believe. And God's wrath remains on them. It's impossible for them to be the bride of Christ, okay? So we have to to understand some of these things. The third point we want to learn, and there's three sub points to point number three. First of all, he says, don't take my son there. Why, why? Because if, if Isaac, was taken out and gone back to uh, uh, Nahor, then probably in the effort to get the bride and uh, the, the family there probably wanted to keep him there, he would have never probably come back to the promised land. This was the land of the heritage. He was to remain there. In other words, the point is don't go back. Don't go back. This is the promised land. The second thing, is that the bride was to come to him by faith, not influenced by seeing him face to face. This is an arranged marriage. She's not going to be influenced. She's going to come by faith. She's going to trust in the Lord. And the third thing, really, their applications to us. We don't go back, do we? Just like like Isaac, we don't go back. And just like the bride, we come by faith. True? We come by faith. We We haven't seen him face to face. We've only read about him. The Bible says that by faith he lives in our hearts. His presence is in us. We believe that. We trust that. As you do, then you know and you experience the reality of the presence of Christ in your life. But it's all by faith. So we learned three important things. Now look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10 tells us, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Nehrem and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw the water. So we read in verse 10, when we go out to share with people, in effect, we have all the goods. What did the servant take with him? He took with him everything he needed, a tremendous representation of the riches of his master, didn't he? He was fully prepared when he went to seek the bride. When you and I go out and we seek to share the gospel with people, we go out confident that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This is what Paul tells us Ephesians chapter 1. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We are not bereft of resources. We have all manner of resources available to us. The issue is, am I going to make, make, make those resources um, known? Now, from verse 12 on, the account shows that bringing people to Christ involves several stages. So from verse 12 on, we're going to see six stages of bringing people to Christ. Now, incidentally, notice that he's stopped outside. This is a a journey of about 500 miles. We're not given any details of the journey itself. All were said that he finally shows up at Nahor, and now he camps outside the town by the well. It's evening. He knows, as the custom is, that the women are going to come out, and they're going to draw water in the evening uh, to take back to the town. Now... Verses 12 through 14, we see stage one of God's way of sharing the gospel. What do you think is the very first stage? Can anybody pick it out? Prayer, right? But just more than prayer, I want to I suggest to you that it is supplication. Supplication is literally beseeching God, crying out to God. It's intense prayer. Now, the servant... He's on a tremendous mission here, isn't he? Tremendous responsibility. He no doubt understands what is being weighed in the balance. The whole promise of God. All the blessings of God are being being weighed in the balance. He's got a tremendous responsibility. If you understood the responsibility that God has entrusted you, would you not pray with great fervor? This is the point. So the first stage is supplication. Read with me. Verse 12. Then he prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink... And I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, first thing that the servant did was to pray. Always pray. Acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways and he'll make your path straight. Always pray first. Asking God to give him success as he served his master. He further prayed that God would enable him to recognize the one that God had chosen. Lord, show me that one. Beloved, we cannot possibly overemphasize the importance of prayer. Before we begin to witness to other people, we need first to pray for them and beseech God to give us success in our witnessing. Lord, give me success. Give me success. I pray for these people, Lord. Now, we have this first stage of supplication. He's prayed for success. Second stage is confirmation. Confirmation. Now he asks for confirmation, doesn't he? He prays for success, but he also asks for confirmation. When we witness, we don't just go up on the street and knock everybody off with the gospel indiscriminately. What kind of confirmation does he ask for? Yeah, and God have her have her volunteer to water my camels. Now, I want you to know something. Do you th- how many camels does he have? Ten camels. Do you think that ten camels, after a five hundred mile journey through the wilderness, would be thirsty? Do you think it highly likely that just any woman is going to come? And want to not only just give this guy a drink, well, well, that would be typical of Middle Eastern hospitality. But do you think that she would further offer voluntarily, without even being asked or coerced, to water those 10 camels? What are the chances of that happening? Slim to none. Unless, of course, God moves on someone's heart. See, so he's asking for confirmation. He doesn't know who to choose. He says, Lord, Lord, this is the deal. This is how I'll know she is she'll give me a drink but she will volunteer to water my camels (laughs) now you got to know something that well or literally the spring was not it was not in a convenient place typically it was down down some stairs into a little valley where she had to take a water jar go down those stairs fill the water jar trudge back up the stairs fill the trough how many times we don't know it took her to fill that trough to satiate the thirst of ten camels. Now, I want to suggest to you, she is a good woman. <laughs> I mean, big time. Right, guys? Good woman? Amen. Amen. Woo! All right. Now when we witness to somebody, we need some confirmation. When we're going to share the gospel with them, we pray, we pray, God God shows somebody to us, we think maybe they're the person that we're to talk to, that we're to begin to share with. We need some confirmation, right? How do you get confirmation? Well, you ask, give me a drink of water. Throw out a question. Make a statement. Do something nice for that person. Try to see if there's a if there's an open door there. We want confirmation if in fact there's going to be any ensuing ongoing conversation with this particular person. We need confirmation. It's kind of like picking fruit off a tree uh, to see if it is ripe yet to be picked. How many times have we ever picked fruit off a tree? A lot of times, right? Have you ever picked a, a, a piece of fruit that's not ripe? You just have to tug and tug and tug. Finally you yank it off and you bite into it, it's useless, it's not worth eating, right? but if the fruit is ripe i mean you're testing it if you're not going to be foolish you test it to see if it's ripe you know you know it's not going to be good to eat unless it's ripe and so you kind of test it you're checking for confirmation and you find a ripe piece you do you have to yank it off or generally does it just kind of fall off in your hand yeah it's a setup it's a piece of cake but you kind of of got to test it. You got to squeeze it a little bit. You You got to see if it's the one that you want to, if it's ready, okay? So we need confirmation. Well, he's asked for confirmation. Along comes Rebecca. Along comes Rebecca, and we see in verse 17 that the servant hurries to meet her. He hurries to meet her. We don't want to waste time, do we? No procrastination. We've already prayed. We trust that God will lead us to that person. When first someone shows up, we want to see if that's the person. We hurry out to meet them. He hurries to meet her. He asks for a drink of water. Then in verse 19, he receives his confirmation. In other words, he opens the door. He broaches a conversation. asks for a drink of water. She's going to give him a drink of water. Look at verse 19. After she had given him a drink of water, she said... Oh, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. That's a lot of water until they have finished drinking. Not just I'll give them a little slap of water, they're going to be satisfied. Until they finished drinking, and so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well. to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. What do you think? (laughs) (coughs) That servant had to be going, yes, yes, first try. (laughs) We're in, you see. And man, he's gotta be excited. So we have confirmation, right? Beloved, when we share the gospel, when we begin to share the gospel, confirmation often comes when people begin to respond and ask us questions in return. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. This is key. If we're going to share the gospel, we have to, in our own hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, right? Does that make sense to you? And then we'll always be prepared to give an answer. We'll be sincere. We'll be real. God looks on our heart, doesn't He? It's not just a perfunctory exercise. Lord, I want, I want You to lead me to that person that You know, that You're drawing to Yourself. We'll never recognize them unless we set our hearts apart to Christ. Then we'll be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. You see, when you set apart your heart for Christ... It just, it just shows in your life, doesn't it? And people, people, people just look at you and say, you're different. You're different. Tell me about your life. And then we can give them an answer. We can share with them. We can begin to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we need to know the Scriptures to give them the correct answers, don't we? That's right. Now, if you don't know the Scriptures, we have these little, uh, little books. It's called Bridging the Gap. It's a little tract. You can actually just sit down and you can read this to somebody. Now, they don't know that you're reading it for the first time. Right? They assume that you already know all this stuff. But it's real simple. All the scriptures are here. You can can walk somebody through it. Now, what's the first stage? Supplication. What's the second stage? Confirmation. Let's do this again. You guys are a little slow right now. What's the first stage? What's the second stage? All right, here. You ready for the third stage? Preparation. Preparation. What's okay, now the servant knows that this is the woman. He knows this is the one, but he doesn't blurt out all the stuff right there at the well. He wants to prepare. So in verses 22 and 23, he essentially asks, look, can I stay at your father's house tonight? Is there a place for me to stay? And she says, most assuredly. He wants to get some time when he can sit down And explain his mission, he can prepare not only her, but also the family for what he's going to tell them. So he asks if there's any other opportunity that he could have to visit. Now, we should always think about this prepare the person first. You've got an open door, but you want to prepare the person for what you're going to tell them. Jesus did this with Zacchaeus, do you remember? Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus, if you remember, was a very rich tax collector, short in stature. Jesus comes to town. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he can't see over everybody else's head, so he climbs a tree to get good visibility of Jesus coming through town. Jesus stops, he notices Zacchaeus, and he says to Zacchaeus, Oh, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, you rotten sinner, don't you know that you're going to hell? No, he doesn't do that. He's going to prepare Zacchaeus. So he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down, come down. I have need to stay with you tonight. We're going to sojourn in your house. I want to spend some time with you. I want to prepare you. Does that make sense? See, so we don't blast people. We we build relationship. We want to prepare them for when we're going to share with them. Now, Before you tell someone about the beauty of God, before you tell them about the wonders of God, before you tell them about the love of God, before you tell them about the judgment of God, prepare them first. Prepare them first. Now, that sets us now. We're we're in the preparation stage. Now, here comes stage number four, the presentation. What's stage number one? Stage number two? Stage number three? Stage number four. Ooh, okay, here we go. Now we're going to make the presentation. We've prayed for him. We've got confirmation. We've prepared him. Now we're going to make the presentation. Verses 34 through 38. And actually, it goes all the way through verse 49 of chapter 24. He goes on and on and on, telling the entire story of why he has come. He gives them the whole story. He leaves nothing out. Great detail. We let people know why we're sharing with them. He tells them, in effect, that God has sent them. Now, when you try to lead somebody to the Lord, don't talk only about the love of God. Don't talk only about the judgment of God. We want to tell them the whole counsel of God. We want to tell them how God created the world, how God created the universe, how God created the first man and the woman, how God placed them in the garden, how God had fellowship with them in the garden in the cool of the day, and yet how the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, how they listened to the devil, and they rebelled against God. People need to know how sin has condemned all of mankind to eternal punishment. But people also need to know how God has provided a way of escape for those who believe in Jesus Christ. See, they need to know the whole counsel. You've got to have time to present that. That's why you prepare people. Can I sit down and talk with you? Can I have some time with you? They've got to know why you've come, too. The very first time that I did this, very first time, I'll never forget it, God spoke to me. And he gave me a picture of a a certain, certain man in my mind. I'd never met this man. I'd never talked to this man. But he gave me a picture of this man's face. And it was the next day that I saw this man. And it was in a health club setting in a locker room. And God told me the night before, he says, I want you to go and I want you to speak to him. I want you to tell him that I sent you and that I want him to come to me. Now, you got to know, the night before, I'm going, right. i would never done that before in my life. But God was so, so clear in terms of what he showed me. The next day, I saw this man. And you got to know that I went, whoa, there he is. That's the guy. And so I said, Okay, Lord, here I go. I don't know what's going this guy could punch my lights out. But I'm just gonna go do what I believe you told me to do. I walked up to him and he turned to me, and they were standing in this locker room. And he turns to me, the other guys are standing around there. And I knew I had to speak first. <laughs> and I said very simply, God sent me to you. Now he could think I was a flaming maniac, couldn't he? I said, "God sent me to you." He said, "God sent you to me, huh?" He said, "What did God send you for? Because he has a message for you. What's the message? He wants you. He wants you to come to him, and I'm supposed to bring you." And the guy just went down like a shot, and he was just overwhelmed the fact that God would send somebody a personal messenger to him. He became a Christian. He's a member of our church today. I will never forget that day. That was the very first time I ever had ever done that. But you know what? God moved. God was faithful. And I was able to make a presentation of the gospel to him. And he came to know Jesus. Jesus. As his own personal Savior. Beloved, we need to give the full counsel of God in our presentation. But we also need for them people to know why we're there, that God has sent us. You read that in that passage. Now, I want you to notice number five, the fifth stage. We've made the presentation. Now the invitation. Now the invitation. Verses fifty through fifty two, read those with me. Laban and Bethuel. Now Laban was Rebecca's brother, Bethuel was her father. They answered. Now they hear the whole story. They've heard the servant's testimony. And now their response is this This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or another. Obviously, God has sent you. We see God's hand all over this, no doubt. So let's say, here is Rebecca, take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. Now, they decided that they should, we'll see, give Rebecca the last word. Now remember, salvation is a very personal thing, isn't it? In other words, what I mean by that is that no one else can believe in Christ for us. Isn't that true? And no matter how strong our faith is, we can't believe in Christ for somebody else. They have to make their own decision. You can want for them to believe in the worst way, but they have to make the decision. So her parents, they, uh, in fact, were ready to let her go, but we see now in verse 58, they turn to her and she has got to make the final decision. So in verse 58, we have the invitation And the acceptance. Look at this with me. So they called Rebecca and asked her, Will you go with this man? And what is her response? I will go. You see the invitation and you see the acceptance. It's very clear. Beloved, when we give people a presentation, we must also give that person a chance to respond. We've got to give them a chance to respond. The Apostle Paul did this in the book of Acts in chapter 27, 26, verse 27, when he preached to King Agrippa in Rome. He says, oh, King Agrippa, after he's given the message, he says, what are you going to do about this? In other words, he bounces the ball in Agrippa's court. And also for us... As you and I share the gospel, we should always close by asking that person, now, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ, the Savior? What are you going to do with him? Bounce the ball in their court. You give an invitation, you wait for the response. Several years ago, some of you know, I used to carry a card with me that, that had printed on it, I reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, with a little place for people to sign their name and date it. And I would typically go and witness to people, and I would always have a little supply, a couple of two or three of these cards with me. And when people would, would when I'd, I'd share the gospel, and they'd say, no, I don't believe, I don't want to believe in Jesus, or I don't believe in Jesus, however they'd say it. I'd whip out with a little card. And I'd pass the card over to them, and I'd say, would you sign this card then? Well, they'd look at the card, and on the card it says, I reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And typically they'd throw the card back. No, I'm not going to sign that card. I said, why won't you sign it? You just said you won't believe. Just sign it. I'm not signing that card. <laughs> now, why wouldn't they sign it? Because there's just a bitty chance that maybe he is who he says he is, and they probably ought to believe, but if they sign it, that seals their fate. And they'll never know where they can find me because I got the card. <laughs> that guy search high and low to get to me, get that card back and tear it up. And there are some occasions when I used to just really play that to as far as I could get it. They knew that I knew that they wanted to believe but they wouldn't believe. And I knew that they knew that I knew. <laughs> believe me. So we've got the invitation now. What comes after the invitation, do you think? Last stage, incorporation. Incorporation. What's the first stage? Second stage? Third stage? Fourth stage? Fifth stage? All right, now comes the sixth stage, and this is incorporation. Even after the ones we have witnessed to have started to put their faith and their trust in the Lord... We still have work to do. What work do we have to do? Discipleship. Incorporate them into the church. In short, you catch them, you clean them. (laughs) Don't bring them to my doorstep. I got enough to deal with on my own. I can't do yours also. You say, but I don't know what to say to them. Just bring them. Do you remember what Andrew said to his brother Peter? Come and see. Come and see. If you don't know exactly what to say, if you're not that well versed, just say, come and see. I'll pick you up. I'll bring you. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. We're going to have a baptism Easter Sunday night. What's one of the first things you want to do? Make sure they get baptized. It's part of your discipling. It's part of your incorporating them into the body of Christ. What's another thing? If they don't have a Bible, what are you going to do? Get them a Bible. Now, we bought 5,000 Bibles. We bought 5,000 Bibles to distribute. Full Bibles, not just New Testaments like we typically have given out. And we got them, I think, for a buck and a half a piece. It was just great price. So we got 5,000 Bibles. Now, when people come to Christ during the, during the drama, they're going to get a little packet. In the packet is a coupon. That coupon is redeemable for a Bible. So you're going to say, let me see your packet. <laughs> Look, here's a coupon. What is it for? A Bible. Let's go get it. <laughs> not you go get it. Let's go get it. See, we're, we're what? We're incorporating them. If you leave people to their own devices, chances are it's not going to happen. We've got to bring them along. We've got to bring them along. We do the work of discipling. We do the work of incorporating There's a whole series of of classes, training classes, being set up. They're they're already in place for three succeeding Wednesday nights. You've probably heard me talk about these. Bring them to those classes. Take them to a mini church. Incorporate them. Bring them to Discovering Hope, starting the first Wednesday night of May. Bring them. You say, but I've been to Discovering Hope 12 times already. You're still going to learn more. Incorporate. Incorporate. That's absolutely critical. Beloved, we don't bring them to Christ and then leave them out in the cold. We incorporate them. Making disciples. Don't be afraid if you don't know exactly what to do. Just come. Just say, let's go. Let's find out what happens. I don't know what we're going to do next, but let's just go find out. Can we do that? Sure. Sure. Now look at verses 66 and 67. We close with these two verses. We see this beautiful, beautiful picture. Beautiful ending. And then the servant told Isaac all that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. And he married Rebekah. He brought her into the tent. That's a picture of incorporating her. She now is going to assume the matriarchal role that, that Sarah had. She now is incorporated into the family. He takes her in. I love this next part. So she became his wife, and he loved her. Isn't that beautiful? You see, a picture of the church. Finally, we come come to the bridegroom. He takes us in. We become his bride, and he loves us. Beloved, what an awesomely beautiful picture. We witness to people, we lead them to Jesus, we bring them into fellowship with other believers, and we finally see them in -in one-in-one communication with God in the kingdom of heaven forever and ever and ever. Beloved, this is sharing the gospel God's way. Six very easy, simple steps. If you understand those steps... If you use those steps, you start with prayer, you will find that God will lead you to those people. He's already marked out. He's already worked in them. And it will not be an arduous task. It will be the, one of the most exciting things you'll ever do in your Christian life is to see somebody come into the kingdom, get born again, before your very eyes watch them change, and you get to participate in this great, great wonder of discipleship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you. We worship you this morning. Thank you for the great joy and privilege you give us to participate with you in the building of your church. Lord, I pray that we'd all take these things to heart, that we'd be faithful people for your glory, Lord. Now, I want to pray with some of you this morning. I want to pray in a very particular way. There are some who are still a bit timid, a bit overwhelmed by this whole process. Maybe you've never evangelized anybody. Maybe the very prospect of it scares you to death. But you know that God is calling you, and he's already identified people in your life. Or maybe you haven't seen anybody in your life because you're just too darn scared to even entertain the thought. Well, if anything I said applies to you, then I want to pray with you. God is calling us. He said, remember, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because what? It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, if you find yourself in that place where you're, you're timid, you're afraid, you're ineffective in that arena of evangelism and talking to people about the Lord, then I'm going to ask you to stand and I am going to pray for you. But don't you stand unless you want God to work in your life and you're serious about it. This is not an exercise in futility. You're saying, God, I need your help. I need you to move in me in such a way that I will be bold and I can bring people to know you. Okay? Are you serious? All right. Those of you who are standing, if you're really serious, then lift your hands with me right now. Lift your hands up to heaven. Pray this prayer with me. God, make me a bold Christian. Lord, a bold and gentle, loving Christian. Fill me with compassion for those who are perishing. Lord, open my eyes. Break my heart, Lord, for those who are perishing. Don't let me pass by a single day without praying for the lost and, Lord, without praying for your direction to those people, Lord, that you'll bring me into their life. You are the Lord of the harvest, and you've instructed us to pray to you as such to send workers into the harvest. And, Lord, let us be among those workers in that harvest field. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be faithful to your call to make disciples. We give you thanks this morning. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Empower us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? All right. What are you going to sing? Shine, Jesus, shine. Let's sing, Shine, Jesus, shine. Set our hearts on fire. Amen.